Hello there, and welcome to my podcast. I'm Connie. I'm a certified nutritionist, personal trainer, busy mom, and I live on a small hobby farm. I'm a former bodybuilder, and I currently have found a love for endurance sports. But I'm not your typical athlete. I believe there are many more contributors to athletic performance and overall health, and that we as a population might be doing it wrong. You won't see me pounding goose or chicken and rice, but you will see me in the pursuit to fuel not only athletic performance, but also balance it with optimal health. This is not just a podcast for athletes. Many people that fall into the health scene get there for a reason. I found myself in suboptimal states at multiple times in my life, and it has really sparked my passion for metabolic and systemic health. I am constantly a student of what I love, and now I hope to help others by bringing quality guests to the show to share their opinions and resources to hopefully help you formulate strategies to help you crack your health code. Well, here we are again. I can't tell you guys how thankful I am that you are joining me for another podcast. I have not missed a Monday in the last few years, and so I'm super excited that this podcast keeps happening and you guys keep joining me episode after episode. It's really, really rewarding. Today, I'm super stoked because I have a gentleman after my own heart. We totally hit it off, super like-minded individuals, and that is Rob Wolf. He is a former research biochemist and is a two-times New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars, and today you get to hear us chat about just about everything under the sun. We kind of hit it all um, from parenting and helping your kids make the right food choices to uh, (laughs) mindset, um, all sorts of things. So we kind of just go all over the place. We talk about electrolytes in this episode and sodium balance and why it's so important and how it can be very dangerous if that becomes disrupted. And there's just so many pearls to take away from this episode, and I'm super, super excited. I actually jumped it ahead in the queue because I felt like it made a, like so many impactful points that I wanted to touch on, especially because it's the bodybuilding season and people are out depleting sodium and water and all doing all these crazy things. And because we just had an extreme bodybuilding success last week with my client not doing crazy things, we kind of talk about that as well. And so I thought, you know what, I better get this out there, make sure that it it goes upon all of the ears of these people because, man, there's some dangerous stuff when you start depleting water and screwing around with sodium. So anyway, uh, that's that without me rambling on about that any further. Uh, I just want to let you guys know, uh, be reminded that I am still advocating for better beauty with Beauty Counter. And so they have a products that are free of over 1800 chemicals. 
They are extremely clean, and that's why I like them. However, they are not just a company that's out there selling things. They are also trying to change the laws revolving around beauty, which is really amazing because no major laws have been passed since 1938, and they are working to change that because the beauty industry needs to be regulated, and it's not right now. So basically, we can put these chemicals on our skin and these endocrine disruptors on our skin and it's totally okay and the government doesn't care and these things cause cancer they cause a disruption in our hormones uh they have xenoestrogens in them which really fake our body out there's so many women out there struggling with and men with hormone imbalance and we also touch on that in this episode but uh just be reminded guys i am trying to do what i can to uh become a part of things that I believe in. And so, yes, they do provide me an income, which is great because I'm an entrepreneur, but I wouldn't recommend them if I didn't believe in them. And I believed in anything I recommend on this podcast first and foremost before I ever decided to partner with them. It wasn't just like, oh, I think I'm going to sell this. No, there are true core values to the things that I recommend. And so that is why when I bring things up on this podcast, they are things that I truly believe in. So I want you to know that beautycounter.com forward slash Connie Nightingale, you can get yourself some great products. If you're on a budget and you don't know where to start, I would definitely start in their last chance bin. There's a ton of great stuff in there. Most of it is stuff that just got rebranded or relabeled. So it's the same great product, different container. Anyway, before I ramble on any more about anything else, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode with me and Rob Wolf. Good morning, Rob. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on here. Uh, it was just by chance that I had planned on having you in like on the podcast in the future sometime, but it I hadn't needed to pursue it just yet. And then you guys reached out to me. So double bonus. We got it all worked out. And now you're here. Super excited. Thanks for having me on. So First of all, let's fill my listeners in a little bit on who you are, what you do, what got you doing what you like to do. Uh, let's see here. I, I, I'm almost 50 now, so the wandering old man explanation gets longer and more wandery. But uh, I, uh, uh, I, by training, I was a biochemist. I did an undergrad in biochemistry, was on track uh, to either do an MD program, a PhD program, or a combined MD PhD program looking mainly in the areas of cancer and autoimmune research. And ironically, it was around this time that I suffered a pretty monumental health crisis. I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that uh, I, I was facing a bowel resection at the age of about 26, 27. And I knew enough about medicine at that time that I knew that this was not a good outcome. Like uh, it can save your life in an acute setting, you know, the, the surgery or the, the drugs that are available, but it's not a good prognosis long-term. 
and I kept poking around and, and trying to find some, some workarounds with this. And it was right around this time that my mother, who had had kind of a lifetime of health problems, it, she was diagnosed with celiac disease, which is this autoimmune gluten reactive uh, condition. Her rheumatologist said that she was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. She had like eight interrelated autoimmune conditions. And when I was looking at what was going on with her and kind of comparing and contrasting what I had going on, like, man, this is very similar. And clearly, you know, half my genetics come from my mom. So uh, some high likelihood of problems there. And I started noodling on, okay, if my mom's reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy, what should I eat? And initially, I was kind of like, what on earth does one eat if they don't eat that? Like I was eating kind of a low fat vegan diet at the time. So the dairy I kind of got, but the grains and legumes, I'm like, what on earth does one eat if you don't eat grains and legumes, you know? And I think even more standard American diet, you would ask that question. So uh, I don't know where this idea popped into my head because this is 1998, mind you, but I, I, in my head somewhere, there was this idea of something called a paleolithic diet, paleotype diet. And so I did some searching on that. There was this newfangled search engine called Google. And then to Google, I put paleolithic diet and I found a little bit of information. And what was interesting is it talked a lot about autoimmune and gut related problems with these, what they would call Neolithic foods, these modern, modern foods. And clearly it doesn't affect everybody that way, but it's surprising how many people end up having some pretty significant health problems from these foods that we just assume are normal and natural and that they're actually from an evolutionary perspective, pretty, pretty new, you know, and, and some people do well with them. Some people like me, not so well. So I uh, adopted what we would now call kind of a low carb paleo keto type diet and 22 going on 23 years later, that's what I've been doing. I've tinkered and fiddled with different things along the way, but that's largely been what I've, I've fiddled with. Uh, I went on to co-found the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. So if people like CrossFit, they usually think that's kind of cool. If they hate CrossFit, then they usually hate me by extension because it played a role in, in its uh, expansion. And then I've written a couple of best-selling books in this kind of paleo diet, low-carb area, um, done work with uh, everybody from like Naval Special Warfare, working with SEALs and their support folks uh, to just, you know, run-of-the-mill people who have significant health problems. And that's honestly where my, my heart really lies. It's cool working with elite athletes, but I kind of feel like they're going to be elite no matter what I do. Whereas somebody who has run the gauntlet of conventional medicine and they have a significant health problem, like what I had, if they get the right information, it's possible it could really change or potentially even save this individual's life. So it's kind of the the, 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 the people that medicine forgot is kind of who with my, my sweet spot, you know, it's, it's that last stone that needs to be unturned to see if what folks have going on could be resolved by this kind of evolutionary biology or, or ancestral health template. Okay. I love a lot of things here. So it's going to be hard for me to backtrack and get all of this all in one place. But um, the biggest thing that you said was, you know, well, there's a couple of them, but one thing you said is like elite athletes are probably going to be elite, but do you find that when you're working with elite athletes, some of them are, have the worst health of all, right? Because they're doing crazy things. Like, I mean, speaking of, uh, CrossFit, I'm, I'm, I was listening to Joe Rogan and Matt Frazier the other day, and 
he's like, yeah, I would just dry scoop like three scoops of Gatorade before I would go out and work out. And I was thinking, okay, well, that might be working for you now, but how about your insulin sensitivity later on in life? So I feel like a lot of these elite athletes eventually end up being the ones with big problems because they are performing at such a high level and they are trying to uh, find all of these things to help them perform. And I think I feel like some of those people actually end up being sicker than the general population. It, it, it's ironic. There's a, a big flame out at that top end of the, the athletic performance spectrum. Uh, James Fitzgerald, who uh, won the male division of the very first CrossFit games. And then he, he continued to be quite competitive, has trained a number of uh, uh, champions and, and high placing folks in the CrossFit scene. He he's, pretty unequivocal that the the dietary requirements of elite CrossFit performance are antithetical to health. Like it is going to be, you. it's a race against time. Like, are you going to be, uh, uh, you know, how long are you going to be in that elite level uh, uh, competitive, you know, proposition before the wheels kind of fall off the wagon on your on your health, it, it, it's kind of a race against time in that regard. And we we see this in other places. Um, a lot of people who end up with autoimmune conditions or really significant health problems, it comes right on the heels of like doing a triathlon, a, an Ironman, an ultra marathon, something like that. And it's not to say that you don't don't or shouldn't do those things, but I. Uh, it's so hard because it seems like our population is split into one of two camps. You have folks that you literally need to douse them with gasoline and set them on fire to get them off the couch. And then you have other people that are committing suicide via exercise. And seemingly there's nobody in between. Like it's just this ghost land in, you know, in between there. So it's a, it's a tough thing. Um, and, and again, this is kind of my wandering old man deal, but yeah, I, it, it's a elite athletic performance is, is, it can be fun. It can be really cool. It can be kind of life affirming, but it's not necessarily healthy. Can't, not necessarily unhealthy or, you know, if somebody's, say you've got some young athlete who could make millions of dollars in a, a multi-year career or something like that. Okay. We're going to let's try to risk mitigate because if this person is smart, they might make enough money to then retire and they and their family are set up for the rest of their lives. But if uh, you're some washed up has been like me and you roll into a CrossFit gym and you're like, dude, I'm going to do the old guy age group CrossFit games and you take it as anything other than an interesting challenge and, and you grind yourself down so that you have no libido, your hair is falling out, you have orthopedic issues out the wazoo, we really missed the the point on this thing, you know, in my opinion, in my opinion. Okay, so I love that because I was one of those people, right? I thought that if I pursued my athletic goals at 150%, even if I didn't win, I would never be let down because I know that I put my all into doing it. And that used to be the thing, right? You can sleep when you're dead. You can train. You can push yourself to the end. And now all of a sudden, I'm glad that there's more light being shed on it, but there there's more light being shed on the fact that your adrenals and your HPA axis and all of your metabolic processes can't handle that athletic load and that it actually puts an extreme strain and does trigger autoimmune autoimmunity in a lot of individuals. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, 
it, man, it, again, it's funny because we do have seemingly this bifurcated, you know, world that we live in where far too many people are too inactive, don't take, you, you know, don't have some modest performance goal. That, that is, you know, in, in truth, that is one interesting thing that I, I want to say about CrossFit. I never had a female client that would had disordered eating who was following CrossFit. And, and here's why I think that is. Um, if somebody started doing things squirrely, like some anorexia or some bulimia or something like that, they would come into the gym and their performance was garbage. It was absolutely wretched. And so people want to look better. You know, the aesthetics are, are a big driver, you know, as part of athletics and, and whatnot. But what was interesting was that when folks got really performance oriented, I will say that that was, it provided an interesting leverage as a coach. It's like, hey, Connie, um, why did you come in dead last the last two weeks? What have you been doing nutritionally? And uh, well, maybe I was skipping some meals or maybe I was, you know, going to the bathroom and, you know, and it's like, well, do you want Shirley to continue kicking your ass on every workout? And you're like, fuck no. <laughs> and, and so then we had this, okay, well, you're going to eat your protein and we're going to keep you on track with your, your, your good carbs. And we're going to get this put back together. Otherwise you're going to come in dead last every single workout. And so it was, I will say that that performance part versus just the purely aesthetics part, like when I did more kind of aesthetic based coaching, it, it was almost impossible to stamp out the disordered eating. Like, it, it, you know, when I had to work constantly to prevent it. Whereas when women in particular were performance oriented via kind of CrossFit activities, and if we saw a retrograde performance and it was because they were doing squirrely things with their diet, I had immediate leverage on those folks and they had leverage on themselves. They're like, I get it. I get it. I've got to feel myself like, you know, um, this stuff's going to work. So it, there's some interesting give and take in that whole world around um, being so performance oriented that you destroy your health, but then a little bit of performance orientation can get you off the couch. It can make life um, meaningful. You know, you're like, okay, I've got one pull-up right now. I want to get to 10 pull-ups, you know, and that's a very worthwhile performance goal. Um, where you draw the line between what's worthwhile and what's not, that gets a little bit murky sometimes, you know, when we start getting a, a weird risk reward story, but you know, it's, it, again, it's just fascinating that there seems to be very few people in that middle ground, you know, it's kind of a, a one or the other side of this story. You know, I find it interesting that you talk about performance and eating and all that stuff. Cause in the bodybuilding industry, there's so much disordered eating myself included. Like I never went through anorexia or bulimia or anything like that, but the, I used to eat a certain way. And when I, to look a certain way, and when I moved mm -hmm. into the endurance scene and I stopped worrying about what I looked like and started fueling myself for performance and doing what made my body perform at a peak level, that's when my whole body composition changed too. Not only did my performance get right. awesome, my body composition came along with it. And so that I actually did a full podcast last September about it because after I got done with my 120 mile race, I was like, listen, when I stopped focusing on the scale and how I looked and making sure that I ate to look a certain way. And I started actually just fueling my body for performance. I was, I got the best of all of it. And it was a really 
crazy, everything right. changed. My mindset changed, my body composition changed, my performance all changed because I was not fueling to look a certain way. Right, right. It, it's interesting. Um, Greg Glassman is a very controversial guy, the, the founder of CrossFit, but a very smart guy. And he made the kind of an interesting observation ages ago, and I'm going to butcher the, the kind of quote, but he, he made roughly the following analogy. How would you look if you had a double body weight back squat, a two and a half times body weight deadlift, you could bench press one and a half times your body weight, you had 20 dead hang pull-ups, you had a very respectable 800 meter uh, uh, run time, and you had a very respectable five or 10K run time. Aesthetically, what would you look like? You'd look like a brick shit house. Like you, you would be a, a physical specimen, you know, male or female on that. And you would never get to, most likely be very hard to get to what you would look like aesthetically by chasing the aesthetics, whereas chasing some of those performance goals in a smart way, interestingly then feeds back into an aesthetically pleasing, you know, kind of kind of physical physicality. And that's that whole form follows function story. You know, sports cars look kind of cool because they have to look kind of cool because the aerodynamics and the, you know, the, the contact with the road and all that type of stuff. So it, it is interesting um, that, that, you know, that, that a, a little bit of a performance orientation and re but really using that as a solid feedback. If you're pushing so hard that you're going like crazy, but all of a sudden you start gaining fat around your midsection, but you're logging more hours than you've ever logged on your, your run bike swim or something, maybe we have a problem there. Maybe we need fewer hours on the run, bike, swim. Maybe we need some periodicity in that, that training. So it, it, it is interesting that that physical aesthetics, um, the, the, the human brain is remarkably adept at, at, at recognizing symmetry and asymmetries and whatnot. That's where like, you know, you see somebody's face and like really strikingly beautiful people. Like they just have this kind of weird symmetry and it, it, it seems to be fairly uniform across cultures and 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 what have you and asymmetries also tend to pop out like if somebody's got kind of a a lump somewhere like i remember i had a uh, i got a a tetanus booster because i was on a, a discovery channel reality show and like my armpit swelled up in this weird way where like my arm was actually like kind of floating to the side a little bit not not like i'm doing here but pretty significant and people were like hey man you don't quite look right and that was you know wearing a t-shirt or a sweatshirt i'm like oh yeah i have this like hugely inflamed lymph node in my my armpit you know so um we get remarkable feedback from these these kind of aesthetic cues they really do help to kind of drive things in but it's almost like you have to you don't go for the aesthetics you go for the performance and arrive at the aesthetics is, is kind of an in, interesting you know thing but what, what's fascinating to me about that you know like if somebody's lifting weights we can get these little incremental plates you can get quarter pound plates so that if the person's squatting or deadlifting or bench pressing or whatever you can increase their load week by week by a quarter pound a week so there's always potentially a little bit of progress they can make and that's very motivating. You get that little dopamine hit of, oh, I did a little bit better this week and I did a little bit better this week. And, and so we can chase the aesthetics, but indirectly by chasing that performance side. I love all of this. So you kind of, and I'm going to reverse this a little bit here. You talked about how you were vegan. You were 
what you thought fueling yourself properly. When did the shift happen? Because like, I can see that it would be hard to start going back to meat when you've been eating a plant-based diet. Uh, and how, when did you know that this was going to be right for you? Uh, you know, the transition for me was easy. Like it was one meal and I was, I was good to go, but I didn't have psychological kind of, kind of hangups on meat. I had hunted in the past and things like that. So I, you know, it was pretty intimately related with the fiddly bits of meat. I know some people, you know, um, become weirded out about meat or, you know, they, they just never really had an understanding of kind of the, the, the food system and stuff like that. And so they can psychologically get, get kind of, um, it can be a very upsetting thing. It would be like if somebody asked me to eat a, a bucket of slugs or something, you know, it's like, okay, that's really weird. Um, for me, it was literally one meal. Like I, I went and got, uh, kind of a, a a grass-fed beef uh, a rib rack and I roasted it for three hours and I had a salad and a little bit of fruit and it was the best night's sleep I had had in like three years it was the first time that I woke that I didn't wake up in the night with like cramping guts needing to go kind of you know void myself and everything and and I was like oh this is you know it and in the back of my head there was still some of that stuff of uh meat causes cancer meat causes cardiovascular disease and it's like oh okay so so it was a, a point of reference I totally forgot to mention this I'm about 165 pounds right now reasonably lean got a little bit of muscle on me I was 125 or 130 pounds at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis and I mean I was throwing food down as quick as I could, but I just wasn't absorbing it. My hair was falling out. My nails were all split and pitted and everything from nutrient deficiencies. So I knew I was either going to die from the ulcerative colitis, have a totally life altering surgery for, for the, you, you know, to try to deal with that or go on immunosuppressant drugs. So in some ways I knew enough about my situation that I'm like, dude, I'm going to die anyway. So if meat gives me cancer, meat gives me heart disease, that's going to be 30 or 40 years down the road. It's not going to be next week, but like I could die from this current condition next week. So it was an easy transition for me. And I know some people end up with um, say like some low kind of digestive fire, like their, their digestive enzymes are not great. They can end up with a kind of hypochloridia, low stomach acid. And so some people do need some digestive support. Some people need a little bit of almost kind of counseling to, to make it okay. Like they may start with shellfish and then fish and poultry and then kind of, kind of work their way up. But I, I just went full Fred Flintstone, you know, straight out of the gate. And I was, I was okay with that. Yeah. And I kind of want to circle back there. You talked about the hypercholesterol. I can't even talk right now, but you know what I'm saying here. Uh, anyway, people with low stomach acid, they, um, that's a really common thing in society now. And a lot of yeah. it, I mean, there's so many factors involved with it. I find a big one is just stress people. And this is for athletes yeah. or normal people with their day job. They get super stressed and then it basically just shuts down their digestive processes. And when this happens, people don't realize when your stomach starts to get injured because you're not properly digesting your food, that's also another trigger to a lot of health conditions and then those health conditions go back to digestion. And then all of a sudden you're getting into this little circle of dysfunction. And 
So protecting your digestion is a really, really important thing. Yeah, it, it, it's a great point. You know, uh, overtraining is a stress. Um, having a prick boss is a stress. Having kids is a stress. Um, there's a lot of different ways that we can have stress that input into that. And it, it, it's, I, I forget this, like it, it, and it's something that I really need to remind myself of is this kind of difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic state. Like when people go on vacation, they notice that all kinds of little niggling GI problems go away. Like their sleep is better, even though they're having some booze and some dodgy food, but their, their baseline stress is just so much less. And we, we would have clients that they're like, I, I don't know about your guys' dietary thing. Like I'm leaner now after I drink margaritas and ate tacos for two weeks in Mexico. And I'm like, yeah, because you weren't working, you weren't stressed out. You, you know, I, I get it. But we, you know, when you start adding that stress in and we start getting all kinds of problems, this is where like a daily meditation practice is, is uh, just phenomenal. I ended up, uh, my wife exposed me to uh, Emily Fletcher's stress less, accomplish more like her Ziva meditation deal three years ago. And it, it, it has been as big of an impact on my, my health and my life as ancestral eating has been, you know, and I mean, that it's a, a pretty big deal. And, um, you know, where this stuff starts going sideways mechanistically, we're, you know, that sympathetic parasympathetic state, if we are stressed out, our body is not really concerned about digesting food. It's not concerned about repairing damaged tissues. It's not concerned about uh, enhancing immune response. It, it's allocating resources for fight or flight. And if you are perpetually in that state and then it starts impacting your sleep, and we don't digest our food properly. So these large intact food molecules make it further down the digestive tract than what they should. Then we end up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and intestinal permeability. And then we don't absorb zinc and magnesium. And when we don't absorb zinc and magnesium, we don't sleep and we don't have normal immune function, which then makes the gut fail even worse. So it becomes this feed forward mechanism that is really gnarly and, and difficult to unwind. But this is also why when people start meditating, eat a low immunogenic diet, whether it's paleo or Mediterranean or, you know, whatever, they figure out the foods that they do well with and try to avoid the foods that they don't do well with, magic starts happening. And, it, you know, it becomes this virtuous cycle, either upward or downward with all this. So I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that stress piece. Like it is... It, it is talked about so much, but it almost becomes this trite thing. It's like, oh yeah, stress, it's bad. And then it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, and there's a lot of stuff that you actually need to do to address all the different features and, and really do diligence on it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's the other interesting portion is we know stress is bad, but a lot of us don't realize how bad it actually is. And what I just start like, I mean, throughout my journey and understanding of things, it started to really make sense and all the puzzle pieces have started to come together. And it's like, whoa, stress, look at how many people in this country alone can't conceive or have like um, sexual health problems, things like that. All of your hormones are linked to stress too. So if you're working that crazy job, well, 
of course you're going to have no libido. Of course you're going to have struggle to get pregnant. I mean, your women don't ovulate. Like there's a lot of things. And how about men? Like you see that, that coined men with the big stomach and the man boobs. And not only is food affecting their ability to maintain a, a heavy male physique, they are also so stressed that their testosterone is being suppressed and their, their whole body is changing. Estrogen becomes a, a higher level hormone in their body. And, and next thing you know, you're losing your masculinity due to your life choices. And a lot of these men don't even realize this. Yeah. Yeah. It's very well said. And, you know, there's an ironic feature, um, for both men and women, the, the levels of testosterone. So here's something that a lot of people don't, don't, uh, know, um, which is the dominant hormone in women, uh, estrogen or testosterone, which one is in higher concentration circulating in women under normal circumstances? I was going to say it depends. It's actually it's... testosterone. <laughs> yeah. But men have it. It, it, it's actually testosterone. It's it's about ten times higher than the the circulating levels of estrogen. The thing is, is that in men relative to women, men have about ten times the testosterone that women do. But testosterone is still the dominant hormone, even even in women. But the brain doesn't sense testosterone levels. The brain senses estrogen levels, and this is where things get really squirrely for men in particular. If it, it, for men, if they carry, it, it, this happens in women too, but it, this really feeds forward rapidly in men. If we carry, the, the way that testosterone gets converted into estrogen is, is uh, interfacing with our, our fat tissue and there's a hormone or a uh, enzyme called aromatase, which converts testosterone into estrogen. And this is supposed to happen at a certain rate and it happens optimally when our, our body fat levels are within certain spectrums and actually being bigger competitor lean is not that good. Like it, it, it's, uh, it, it's not that healthy. Actually, most, you know, healthy men are, are at the leanest about 8%, but more 10 to 12% is good. And then women a little bit higher than that. But if the body fat levels get too high, then our body will tend to convert too much of that testosterone into estrogen. The brain senses, oh, wow, there's too much estrogen. There must be too much testosterone then it down-regulates the production of testosterone. And then you end up in this really terrible feedback loop where you're producing less testosterone, but the relative amount of it gets converted into estrogen. And it's just this horrible uh, downward spiral. And this is also just as a, a side note where like hormone replacement therapy can go really terribly sideways if these dietary and lifestyle factors aren't addressed. Because if you've already got excess body fat, and you just inject testosterone into people or put a, a cream on them, you're just going to convert that into estrogen. Like they need some aromatase inhibitors or they, you need to enact kind of a low carb diet and improve sleep and all this stuff. And then we start getting some synergistic effects. But this is where um, shoddy hormone replacement therapy can make the problem even worse. Whereas if you do HRT in a, an intelligent way, it can be absolute magic for people, both, both men and women. You know, it's really funny that it went down this rabbit hole because I literally was just dealing with this particular scenario on a client yesterday. 
and they were telling me their HRT story and it, this is what fits it to a T because there's some extra body fat going on. There's a lot of other factors that are outside factors. And then they got put on HRT and it didn't work for them. Well, obviously it didn't work for them because they had other things that needed to be taken care of first. And I find that's a really common thing in the medical system. Uh, and I, it's, I, and that kind of takes us back to what you said in the beginning, where you realize that you didn't want to help or you did want to help elite athletes, but you were more interested in helping the people that were struggling with these health conditions and stuff like that, because that's kind of the same situation that I'm in where people are unfortunately being wronged by the medical system and the medical system doesn't necessarily know better because they're being trained a certain way too. Uh, but so many things are just being medicated or, uh, given this pill that'll help fix this high blood pressure or this pre-diabetes or diabetes, and they're not looking at what's causing it. And, and over time, all of these things, these things, our body is a whole thing. So if it's whatever it is, it's wrong, whether it's our blood sugar or, you know, it doesn't matter whatever it is, is affected by other things. And all of these things synergistically come together. And if you treat something and just put the bandaid on it, then it's like the little, it's like a boat and there's a hole and you put a bandaid on one hole, but the other one, all the other holes are still leaking. Eventually it's going to fill up. And, and so it's really hard when you're working with people to explain that a lot of people want to just go to their medical provider and get that pill and be done with it. But what they don't realize is eventually their boat is going to fill up with water and it's going to sink. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that we get are the people where their boat's already sinking and they're trying to swim at this point. And it's all very overwhelming then. It, it is. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, like on that HRT front, I'll, I'll focus on men, although this story is parallel to women, but uh, 30-year-old guy, let's say he uh, he played rugby or maybe he was in the military and fired some some rockets and, and did some rifle work and stuff like that. He goes into the doctor. He's like, man, I have just been off. Uh, I can't recover from workouts. Um, I'm getting fat around the midsection. I keep getting tighter and tighter on my diet. Um, I don't know what to do. So the doctor actually does some diligence, runs a, a hormone panel, He's like, well, your, your testosterone is within normal parameters. And the, the bugger with that is that normal for like a 28 to 30 year old male can be as low as 200 on free testosterone or as high as 1100 on free testosterone. Now, optimum running parameters for people do vary. Higher isn't universally better. But that said, uh, my good friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley, which he would be a great person to have on the show. He's a retired Navy SEAL. He's a sleep expert. Uh, he ran the, um, the West Coast Navy SEAL uh, uh, dive unit for about eight years. So like he, he ended up working. Th- this is where I'd learned a lot of this stuff. The SEALs pre-deployment would go through a physical and they would have an 1100 total testosterone. They would come back post-deployment, get another workup and their total testosterone would be 200. They still look pretty lean. They still look pretty, you know, kind of, kind of like savages, but um, they were not the same person. And then in working with their medical providers, they're like, 
you're, you're within normal ranges, but normal range doesn't mean anything like there's optimum for, for people. And so you have that first layer where just thinking about optimum versus, you know, some sort of population wide average. And even on that population wide average, one thing folks don't realize is like on the kind of bad stuff, like average blood glucose continues to go up year by year. Average cholesterol levels tend to go up year by year. So normal lab values are just a reflection of who is coming through the door, not necessarily what is healthy. And that is true on the hormone side. The, the, the hormones of our grandparents and great-grandparents were significantly different than what they are now. Like the, the average male testosterone levels were like three times higher at virtually any given age group three generations ago relative to what they are now. And there's all kinds of factors in it. There's diet, there's circadian biology, there's maybe xenoestrogens, like there's a zillion different things that go in there. But the bottom line is that it's hard to even get someone, a, a physician to screen for this. If they do screen for it, do they have the frame of reference to understand okay, even though this is within normal parameters, what does that really mean for the person sitting in front of me? They're telling me clinically, I have low libido, I, 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 I'm gaining fat, I, I, you know. Um, okay, so then what do they do? Do they just whack them with a lot of testosterone? Do they think about like mitigating the conversion of testosterone into estrogen? You know, so it, it does become a really complex thing. And then are they addressing these, these other diet and lifestyle factors to synergistically enhance this whole thing. And again, I know I talked mainly about men. The reason why I do that is that the female um, analog of this whole hormone story is at least 10 times more complex. So I'm actually talking about something I do understand versus something I don't understand. But there, there are, are parallels within female hormones also. Um, women who are far, well outside of say like perimenopause, maybe seeing declines in hormone levels or alterations like becoming estrogen dominant and, and progesterone estrogen ratios getting off, but they'll go to their doc and the doc says, well, you're within normal bounds, even though the woman is amenorrheic or, you know, uh, uh, having all kinds of like super gnarly uh, uh, PCOS symptoms or what have you. And so there's clearly something going on there, but this is kind of where like the 10 minute doctor visit and standard of care really, really fails us because, okay, that's our baseline, but now what do we, what's the deeper story going on there? Absolutely. And I love all of that. And I'm glad that you brought that up because the national standards for what is average and normal get worse and worse every year. And the way that this nation is going, especially with health is not in the positive direction, which means that those averages are also not going in the positive direction. So I love that you emphasize that normal is not always normal. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a national average and there are normal ranges and there are optimal ranges and those are far different from each other. Yeah, and you know, this is where a little bit of a look at like pre-agricultural societies, pre-industrialized societies are interesting, uh, using a benchmark of hunter-gatherers, horticulturalists for blood sugar levels pre and post meal of hormone levels at any given age group. Like uh, we probably should use something other than westernized societies to determine 
what our healthy benchmark should be. You know, it, it, it's uh, um, it's kind of the the Wall-E, like that Disney movie where like everybody's using hovercraft to move themselves around because they're so heavy that they can't they can't physically move themselves. That may become normal, but I don't I don't know that anybody in the right mind would really suggest that that is healthy or or optimum or really what we should be what we should be optimizing the system around. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny you said that because the more and more I look at the things going on, the more and more I'm like, oh my gosh, this movie, whoever wrote this movie, it was on, on it. They were thinking like, hey, we're in trouble as a society here because things get more and more lazy. People are less and less active. They have more p- things doing things for them. And the evolution of what the human body looks like is far different than what it looked like even 10 years ago. I, 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 I mean, I think of when I was young and I would go grocery shopping or go to the amusement park or all these things, and I'm not that old, people's physiques were much different. And now when you go out, the, uh, the obesity epidemic is a real thing. And I, I'm all for people being body positive, but there's also this place here where we are losing control of our health and you can't try to pad something by saying, no, you're fine with this current physique that you have because many people, and the one that really gets me is children. Children never, I mean, when I was young, there was maybe one kid that was heavier than everybody else in the class. Now, if you're the small kid, you're the anomaly and it is heartbreaking that these kids are being set up with not only a horrible uh, body composition going into adult life, but they're also being set up with all of their, their genes, their taste, their taste preferences. All of these things are, are a, um, are mutated. I mean, when a kid is being raised on all of these hyper palatable foods, they are predisposed at an adult age to not be able to, to like, they only want to eat those hyper palatable foods. You're setting them up for disaster. I don't care parents out there that are listening. If you think it's normal for your kid to have Doritos and you want them to be a normal, like uh, kid or however I get, this is what I get from other parents. I feed my kids extremely healthy, but they're like childhood restored. They need to have all of these chips and things so that they can be like other kids. I'm sorry. You're setting them up for the same problems that you're having as an adult that you're trying to fix. And especially these obese parents that are feeding their kids this food they're they don't want their kids. Would you want that for your kid? I, I wouldn't want what my struggles are. I, I mean, I know what my struggles are. I wouldn't want to give those to my child. And so I feel like people need to become more aware that the habits that they're forming with their kids now are going to impact them heavily later on in their life. Yeah, it's really well said, and we will both probably get canceled as a consequence of this podcast. But you know, it's it's stuff that needs to be to be said. Um, and again, this is kind of this this weird. There's this massive cultural rift here. Should people go out of their way to harangue and belittle people who have weight issues or metabolic issues? Hell no, no. no nobody and the right mind is advocating for that, you know? And then there's this other side of the thing where like, if you have a neighbor whose house is on fire, you're kind of morally obligated to say, 
hey, Charlie, I think your garage is on fire. We need to do something about this, you know? And so it's disingenuine, like just in this age of COVID, very early in the, the COVID pandemic, it became fairly clear that people with metabolic disease, you know, uh, or uh, obesity, blood sugar dysregulation, cardiovascular disease, you know, on and on and on, that they fared far more poorly with regards to morbidity and mortality. And that's, that's just COVID as a standalone. We know that that's true, that th these folks with metabolic issues fare more poorly with influenza, with, with car crashes, with everything, you know? And so do we need to ridicule and belittle these people? No, but also having the cancel culture mob come for people like you and I when we're like, hey, here's this article that's describing that, that a BMI above, you know, XYZ is strongly correlative with poorer outcomes. And then you you get dogpiled on for that. Like that's, I, I, I can't even, I, I struggle for like, it, it's, it's like somebody is literally eating a poisonous diet or something. And you're like, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat arsenic. And everybody's like, you're an arsenic ableist or whatever. And you're yeah. a horrible person. <laughs> you know, no. it's, it, it's kind of crazy, but um, this is the the kind of insane world that, that we live in. And, and, you know, there was a time when parents really endeavored to want their kids to have better than what they had. But some of that was like, oh, the kid needs to learn to struggle against things. And, you know, a whole host of, of different factors and um, ensuring that our kids have poorer health than what we had or what their grandparents had seems pretty counterproductive. I, and I, I get that people want their, their kids to kind of fit in, like there, there is some part of that, but there's a lot of parts of, of modern culture. I don't want my kids to fit in. Our kids are not going to have iPhones at the age of 10. They're probably not going to have them by the age of, of 16 or 18. If they get a phone, it's going to be a flip phone and that's it. it, 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 it you know, it's like we need communication. They don't need to be scrolling uh, TikTok and getting all these weird body dysmorphic messages pumped into their brains and whatnot. And that will be the abnormal thing, but God damn it, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, you know? And, and if they're a little bit like different because that's, that's the way it is, then they have the old stodgy parents that, that did their best to, to make sure that they, they didn't have this influence of like modern social media affecting their, their sense of self, you know? Oh man. And you, you, we are kindred spirits in this talk because this is the truth. Like I can't tell you, it is so hard. Like we live on a farm. I am a really busy human being. Sometimes I'm like, I'm nuts. I got to get rid of some of this stuff. I mean, we've got honeybees, we've got garden, big, huge garden. We've got animals that we raise. We do lots of agricultural stuff. It's a do that, be a business owner, have a podcast, personal training business, um, your own fitness studio. It's too much. It is too much. But then I think about what's going on with my kids. What am I teaching them? Like my daughter took honeycomb to school the other day and explained to the class how the bees make the honey and how it feeds them and how it's made. And the, at seven years old and our family, people are like, your family's so cool. Like we went and did a Spartan race the other day and our 14 year old did it with us, um, placed super high in his division and we all did it together. And everyone's like, that's so cool. We wish we could do that. But here's the thing. 
you can, you can do these things. And it just goes back to the lab work. We're talking about how the normal average gets worse and worse. Do you want your kid to be normal? It's not just lab work, it's societal standards. I don't want my kid to be normal. I want my kid to be a whole different breed of human being that is empowered and that wants to be healthy and wants to learn and wants to be in nature and, and press to be better every day. I don't want my child to be normal. Right. Right. And it would be great if normal was that, you know, kids, and again, I guess this is pushing potentially our value system onto everybody, but, um, I think building strong, resilient kids that can deal with any eventuality and they're, they're healthy, that seems like a win. And it's unfortunate that not every single kid gets the same type of parenting and infrastructure and all that stuff. I, I grew up in a, a pretty poor family. Like I'm going to, I don't know where the, the thing itself is, but I'll, I have this deal I'll share with you. I found this a good while back. I don't know if you can, let's see if I can, I don't know if that's, oh, oh you can. Yeah, yep, got it right go. there. Yep. It's a food coupon. food coupon. Yeah. So this was a food stamp when, when my, I remember when I was five, my mom and I were going through a checkout line and I was, and there were some people giving us some kind of hard stares and saying some not nice stuff. And we got out in the car and I'm like, what was that all about? And my mom was like, well, we're poor and we're on food stamps and you know, there you go. And I remember I lifted one of these and I told my mom, and I talked to her a bunch about, it. I'm like, well, why don't you get a job? Why doesn't dad get a job? Why doesn't this happen? And like, there were just excuses and everything. And both my parents had very difficult lives. Like I, they had a difficulty in their lives that I, I didn't learn about until my twenties. And it actually like gives me much more empathy for their situation. But that said, they also kind of accepted their, their state in life and did nothing to really improve it. And I, I don't know what it was. I don't know why I had a, a different fire in my belly, but I grabbed that thing and I still have it somewhere. We just moved to Montana. So I don't, I don't know which box or folder that that food coupon is in, but I told my mom, I'm like, I'm never, ever going to live with these ever, you know, and like getting our businesses going, Nikki and I, the first two years of running the gym, the two of us existed off of less than $10,000 a year net income. And we just fucking made it work. Like we just, like we were, I probably should have been like, okay, yeah, we could, we could, you know, go on some assistance thing, but I was just like, I am not going to do that. And I'm grateful for the social safety nets that exist because they are legit, they're necessary, but they can also turn into multi-generational traps. And so I, I've had conversations with my kids about this type of stuff. And it's like, there are some people that come from very difficult circumstances and we societally and if we're friends with these people we should do everything we can to try to help them if they want help you know and we shouldn't ridicule them or all the rest of that stuff but at the same time we shouldn't just roll over and expose our soft fleshy underbelly to the world and be like okay i give up i'm done you know it, it, that is also not an acceptable answer to this whole thing you know and again it's this like crazy spread where there's virtually no middle ground here where we're like do we want people suffering no Sometimes some amount of struggle, though, is what's necessary for people to to like come out of the chrysalis to to emerge from their their cocoon and and like really become what they are potentially destined to be. And there's some amount of 
struggle and difficulty that's inherent in that. And I, I think if we've so tried to nerf soft edge the whole world that now, you know, that, that sense of like, I can do something, I can change my situation, whether it's health or financial or what have you, you know, we've, we've kind of stolen that from people. And I know this diverts remarkably far away from, from health in some ways, but it's actually kind of central to it when you get right down to it. Oh man, I could not agree more. We are definitely kindred spirits in this, in this area. And, you know, it, it, in the, at the end of the day, we have to be advocates for ourselves with everything. And we have to own things. We have to become responsible. My childhood was very alike with yours. I was raised on a very small farm, dairy goat farm, and we had nothing. And I basically was like, I'm never going to be this way. Like, I'm going to be responsible with my money. I'm going to, you know, live live within my means. There was a lot of things there um, that I I changed and morphed based on watching the way that my parents lived. And so, uh, and it wasn't bad necessarily ways that they were living, but same kind of deal where it was like, listen, I I don't ever want to be this way and I will make it happen so that that doesn't happen. And in a way, I'm very thankful for the way that I was raised because it gave me that outlook. It gave me that awakening. Sometimes I'm almost concerned that I'm too, my kids have it too good because I'm wondering where the learning right. experience is. So sometimes I have to be a hard ass and be like, sorry, you want this? You're buying it. You're going to have to go mow the neighbor's lawn. You're going to have to work right. for this. And it's like my son wants to do driver's ed right now. And I'm like, hey, guess what? How are you going to pay for that? It's 500 bucks. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. And it's, it, so it's, it's, we need to push our kids to, to understand health. We need th- to push them to understand that it's okay to be uncomfortable sometimes. And uh, that not everything is warm and fuzzy either. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm no mega expert on parenting like we'll 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 see how all this turns out maybe both kids do some expose on what a horrible parent I am at at, at some point down the road but um you know the the main thing that I try to do is give them the sense that uh if if they fail uh we we I love them my wife loves them that there's there's some safety net here you know let's explore um chasing things that we could fail at, but we're doing it in a, a pretty safe controlled environment right now so that they have some sense about risk analysis so that when they're facing things like getting married or being in a long-term relationship or like starting a business or heading down a particular career path that, that maybe has longer term repercussions that they, they have some, some wherewithal with that, you know, and, and, uh, there's some heartbreak and some challenges that are inherent in that, but, you know, let's, um, let's learn those things at, at small survivable scale instead of protecting them until they get out at, at some moment where I'm not there. At some point, I'm going to be dead. I'm not going to be there to, to steward them and, and overview everything. And, and I, I hope that if I do one thing, it's I, I create enough resilience in them that they can they can turn within or they know how to reach out to other people to get the the help and assistance and the the guidance that they need you know uh, we don't exist in a vacuum we are a community so you know one of the main reasons why I've had a decent amount of success in life is both that I'm internally motivated but I'm 
crystal clear about the boundaries of what I'm good at and what I suck at. And when I suck at something, but I need to do it or have it done, I know how to reach out to people and what to, what to do to, to really facilitate that. And I'm not, I'm not scared by that. You know, I'm not scared about asking for help in the, the areas that I, that I need it. And I have good enough communication that I, I can usually, you know, make that happen in a pretty effective way. My, both my kids are really good at math and really like math and they don't really like uh, spelling and writing right now. I'm like, that's okay, but at some point in your life, you're going to have to give a speech or provide a talk or sit across the table from somebody or write something to them, and it's going to have to make sense. And you might be the greatest mathematical genius in the world, but if you come across like, you know, this incommunicative uh, potato or something, you're not really going to get that far. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, I get that. I love that. Well, so speaking of business stuff, you have quite a bit going on. So let's talk about that. You've got, I mean, yeah, let's talk about all your business adventures. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess maybe the first foray was just running a brick and mortar CrossFit facility. That that was definitely, you know, our, our first foray, my primary first foray into business. We ended up co-founding an online journal called the Performance Menu that our, our friend Greg Everett uh, co-founded with us. And we ended up Kind of splitting that off, he ran with the performance menu and we ran with the brick and mortar gym. Uh, back around 2010, we sold the gym to my brother and sister-in-law and they ran it for a good eight, eight years beyond that. And then they ended up selling the gym. Uh, my wife ended up being a co-founder of a technology company called Front Desk, which is kind of a, a business scheduling um, platform. And it was interesting because there, there was a group of computer engineers that were really geeked out on CrossFit and they knew that the scheduling options for CrossFit type gyms were pretty terrible, but they really didn't know the inner workings of the gym. And that's where my wife ended up being this just amazing asset. So it's all these like super geeky, you know, tech guys. My wife is very, very smart, but her main input was here's the flow of what happens inside the gym and what the, the business owner needs to see what the employees need to see, what the front, you know, the, the front facing part for the, the clientele needs to see. And so she did a pretty interesting job with that. And then over the course of time, we've, we've spun up a couple of different businesses. Like we're co-founders of an uh, electrolyte company called Element and that's going really, really well. And, and that the whole thing was born of just recognizing that one of my main failures performance-wise on this kind of low-carb way of eating was inadequate electrolytes, specifically sodium. And it, it was a, a multi-year process of figuring out where I was falling down on that. And again, this the, the way I figured this out was reaching out to some good friends, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Billison, who are the founders of Keto Games, which is this online uh, ketogenic diet boot camp that is mainly women. It's probably 80% women, ages 40 to 65. You know, it's kind of a an interesting demographic, but these guys have moved more people through these remarkable body composition changes than just about anybody I've seen. And they use this kind of appropriate protein, moderate to low carb ketogenic uh, approach, and they're really on point with electrolytes. And so they were able to ferret out that that was something I wasn't doing properly. And when I figured that out, that, that I needed to fix that, I realized, oh, all these people I'm working with have the same problems, you know, like 90% of the, the like low carb problems that we see are probably electrolyte driven. So we, 
we spun up Element uh, uh, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, and it's really motoring along remarkably well. Uh, I'm on the advisory board of, I don't know, good six or eight uh, uh, startups within this health and wellness space, uh, baby foods to, to some technology wearable type things. So it, it's been an interesting, you know, ride going, going through all this, uh, but, but really, um, trying to understand what the needs of folks are and, and uh, uh, seeing where business opportunities pop up around that, it, it, it's been very good for us. Unfortunately, we've been able to provide some, some decent value to these, these entities so that we've had some exits and, and you know, continue to get brought in on these different opportunities. I love all that because, you know, A, not only are you able to generate income for yourself, but you're also able to help people in the process. And I think that's what what that's all about in this health and wellness space. There are so many amazing people out there that are being able to support themselves, but they're also being able to help other people in the process. And so I I really Mm -hmm. love that business model. I think it's a great thing. Um, Your guys' electrolytes are great. They don't have a bunch of artificial crap in it because that's the other thing, right? People think that, that, uh, these things that have, they don't understand that the quality is what matters as well. And there's like, most people are like, oh, well it's zero calorie, but it's full of this chemicals. That's okay. But that's not the truth. You need quality products. So you're also putting quality out there as well. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we've um, we've tried to be as steadfast on that that quality side as we can. Uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting. As a little bit of backstory, I finally became aware. Tyler and Luis knew that the electrolytes were really important for a long time, and then it was like this huge awakening for me. And in theory, I'm an expert in this area. Like, I have a biochemistry degree. I understand the the um, metabolism, the biochemistry of, of uh, low-carb ketogenic diets pretty well, but uh, I was never afraid of sodium, but I also didn't fully appreciate how critical it was to success across a, a wide variety of, of situations. But the first thing that we did was provide a homebrew, make-it-yourself keto-aid prop, uh, you know, formulas this much uh, sodium, this much potassium chloride, this much magnesium citrate, uh, uh, lemon juice, stevia, shake it up, there you go. And we had like a half million downloads of this thing. And and so we started with a freemium model where it's like, here's this free thing, go, go be achieved. And then it was actually people saying, this is really cool, but some sort of convenience thing would be handy because I don't always remember to mix this stuff up before I go to the gym or when I jump on an airplane, TSA doesn't like my three bags of white powder, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> so it, it, uh, it was kind of cool in that we, we, um, we started off by giving the idea away, you know, we gave away the exact formula and, and we had really good success even on that. And then it was kind of the folks that follow us and trust us that were like, wow, this is really good, you know, but, but the convenient, if we had something more convenient, it would be even better. And the, the company has done quite well. It's hard sometimes to find something like that, you know, but I had never, I had all kinds of opportunities to do like a protein powder or do, you know, a vitamin or something. And I was just like, does the world need another protein powder? Like does the world need another multivitamin? And, and uh, even on the electric electrolyte side, you can make the case as the world need another electrolyte, but the way that we formulated it, it's very sodium forward. 
you know, and, and uh, in a way that, you know, effectively nobody else in the scene was, was doing it. And, and now there are some people doing it, which honestly I'm happy for, because if, if, at least if there are some knockoff products, hopefully they, they get the formulation right, you know, and actually help people. Well, there's another thing there that you said back there, and that's magnesium. And so many of these electrolyte companies put magnesium oxide in their in their electrolytes, which really isn't getting you anywhere. It's just cheap and inexpensive for them. And people don't realize there are multiple formulations of magnesium, and that the kind of magnesium is super important to your to your uh, your success with it. So uh, anyway, I do appreciate that as well. That it's not you're not just putting Putting these cruddy products in there. We we do our best with it. it. It never fits everybody's needs perfectly, and that that's why we so like we we stevia sweetened the flavored options that we have. We knew that no matter what sweetener we used, it wouldn't make everybody happy. So we also have a raw unflavored, and we also knew that even the raw unflavored wouldn't make everybody happy. And so we still have the free make it yourself deal. And, yeah. and so our, our main, our main piece though, is just trying to educate people, Hey, electrolytes are probably really important. Ironically, the sodium piece may be the most critical part of this, at least kick the tires on this prospect. And, and if you, if you have some need in this area, you know, address it by, by one of these multitude of methods and, and uh, then hopefully you can rock things even better than what you're doing now. Yeah. So let's dive into that rabbit hole a little bit before we jump off, but why is sodium so important? Because many people are afraid of it. It's become something that's become demonized, but it's actually extremely important, especially in the low carb space. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit and let us know why it is so important? Because a lot of people don't understand that. And like you, many, many people that I work with, that's the first thing I have to troubleshoot if they're having trouble with a low carb diet. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe putting some the, the first emphasis on kind of where did sodium get kind of its current bad rap. It's well understood that sodium plays a role in hypertension, in high blood pressure. Um, when the body retains sodium, it retains water. And when that hits a certain point, then we can end up in a hypertensive state. And honestly, um, when we're most people kind of dismiss high blood pressure. They're like, oh, I go on medication for what have you. I think it's this really underappreciated, like really significant problem for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, renal problems, strokes, and, and what have you. The problem in this whole story, though, is that the way that people get almost all the sodium in their diet in the modern context is there's a lot of sodium in processed foods. And when people eat processed foods, they tend to overeat calories in general, and they overeat kind of junk carbs in particular. And when our body, it, and this is where the, the flip side will come in on the low carb deal, but when our body is experiencing chronically elevated insulin levels, we upregulate the production of a hormone called aldosterone, and aldosterone causes us to retain sodium. So this is where a highly processed hyperpalatable food scenario ends up leading many people to a hypertensive state. But if people modify their diet, eat a largely whole unprocessed way of eating, and doesn't necessarily need to be low carb, it could be you know, like Mediterranean or whatever, what have you, 
but their glycemic load decreases, their insulin decreases. When insulin goes down, then aldosterone decreases. And so we tend to have this diuretic effect. It's called the naturesis of fasting, where we shed water and we shed sodium. And this is one of the things that people will dismiss. They're like, well, you're just losing water weight when you first start a diet. But it's like, yeah, but that was like a big chunk of your cardiovascular disease risk. Like you just normalized your, your blood volume and, and, and what have you. So this is where as, as people eat a less processed diet, they ironically kind of need to supplement sodium from, you know, some other source because they will notice that they will be lightheaded, uh, you know, going from sitting to standing, they'll, they'll kind of get the the room spins, they can be lethargic, uh, cramping, you know, things like that. And ironically, the, the, as we circle through this whole thing, low sodium intake is really strongly correlated with increased insulin resistance. And people have a tendency to overeat and to seek out kind of carby, snacky type foods if their, their sodium intake is low. So uh, adequate sodium intake actually helps to minimize total caloric intake so long as it's not in the context of, of kind of processed hyperpalatable foods, because those things are designed for us to eat more. Like the Lay's potato chip tagline is a bet you can't eat just one. And I'll, I'll take that bet all day long. You know, like these things have some very smart food engineers that they think about the snap and the crackle and the smell and the, the whole, you know, experience to get us to eat more of this stuff. So I don't know if I hit on all the, the points there, but the, Hypertension is definitely the reason why sodium is kind of demonized, you know, this high blood pressure story. It's worth mentioning that um, there have been very good studies where people are put on low sodium diets, but their, their total carbohydrate load remains the same. And it doesn't change their blood pressure much at all. Like it goes down a little bit, but it doesn't dramatically reduce blood pressure. So just removing sodium from the diet, the body will still retain whatever sodium it has or that it's it's getting from the diet if we are insulin resistant. Ironically, though, if we reduce carbohydrate load, reduce glycemic load, that is a really powerful stimulus for reducing um, insulin and, and the reten abnormal retention of sodium. But then ironically, it kind of increases our need for sodium, you know, or at least some supplemental input because we're, we're usually shifting to a less processed diet. I love that. And I love that you said all that stuff. And it's kind of a funny coincidence because last weekend I just had a uh, bodybuilding competitor of mine step on stage. She won her classes, looked incredible. I got multiple DMs, people going, okay, well, how did you peek her out? Because she looked perfect on stage. And I said, well, I did what everybody else doesn't do. I didn't pull water and start screwing around with her electrolyte balance because when you do that and aldosterone gets disrupted, then you actually hang on to the sodium that you're needing to hang on to and it screws up your whole peak. Right. And so everybody else is flushing their clients the week before with massive amounts of water. And then all of a sudden they'll cut their water and load them on all this stuff. And it actually screws up that peak. So it was funny that I've become not only from a ketogenic standpoint, I've also started to try to dive into this stuff a little bit in order to peek my clients out correctly. And also I don't put them in harm's way in the process. I think of all these other people that are super depleted right. and they start screwing around with their sodium balance 
um, with sodium, potassium, People all that. People die from that. Yeah, they they. It's a really yeah. common thing at bodybuilding shows, especially like people will be found dead in their hotel rooms. Like it's a big thing, and people don't realize how big it is. And if when their coach says, "Okay, we're cutting water and we're going to do this and that," they're like, "Okay, well, the the health ramifications uh, can be fatal." Yeah, yeah, and that that's one of the things that has been. I still feel a little bit like a crazy person, even though the medical literature is crystal clear on this. It's much safer to have a little or even a lot too much sodium than too little, particularly as a ratio of sodium to potassium. And that's where some of these um, hyperhydration strategies where you do like, you know, two gallons of water, three gallons of water for five days before an event, and then you, you taper down and it's causing the body to really, you know, dump a lot of water that stuff can work and you can also kill people doing that. And, and uh, whereas the flip side is just managing insulin and then keeping adequate or even a little bit super physiologic uh, sodium levels, ironically, counterintuitively, it puts the water where you want it, not where you don't want it. And you're not going to kill the person. Like they are not going to die from that. And, uh, I mean, from the UFC to figure competitions to, uh, 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 you know, ultra marathons and, and triathlons and stuff like that. Each year, a non-trivial number of people die from over-consuming water absent adequate sodium intake. And, and uh, that used to not happen 50 years ago. 50 years ago, people were told to consume salt tablets and then sip on water up to their thirst mechanism. And it was unheard of for a high school kid to die at football practice from, from uh, uh, hyponatremia from low sodium levels. It never happened, but it was this thing, uh, it, you know, it's, that, that gets a, a, a beyond what you were just talking about with the way that you peak your, your uh, athletes, but it's very similar, you know, this, um, this ability to ignore how, how unforgiving the inadequate sodium side of the story is, but yet it, our, our bodies are very, if you overconsume sodium, it can be problematic for hypertensive people. We're not really talking about that here though, but if somebody overconsumes sodium within about 15 to 20 minutes, the kidneys have kind of sorted that out. Whereas if they underconsume sodium, it's almost impossible for the kidneys to get back on top of that. And the way that they do that is by shedding potassium and you begin this downward spiral where the person can end up with uh, cerebral edema and, and stroke and, and death ultimately. So yeah, props to you for, for doing good by your folks. And then ironically, you also get amazing results as a consequence. It's less dangerous and works better. Who, who would have thought, you know? <laughs> yeah, when you can get someone to do it. But sometimes when you're not a bro, uh, you know, I'm very forward with my clients when I take them on. I'm like, listen, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. You're going to see all of these people doing this. That's not me. I'm not putting your health in, in compromise. And so if you want to put your health in compromise, go hire a different coach. And I probably lose 10 people a year over that. And I don't really care because in the end, I don't want people to have permanent health problems. It may not be death. What if it's something else? Not, I would prefer not to put people in that. I've been there and I don't want, I've been in that position where I was given advice that, that compromised my health and I'm not going to do that to my own people. Well, I, I think over the course of my career, I may have fired as many clients as I hired. Um, and I, I very early on, I made people sign contracts about what the expectations were and what they would and wouldn't do and 
love input, like can't, uh, like it's a therapy session when I talk to folks, like I talk about everything. I'll, I'll go as deep as they want to go. But when it comes to compliance, you're going to do what I ask you to do, because otherwise it's kind of like a, a trying to fly an airplane with oven mitts and a, on and a blindfold. I, if the person is not telling me what's really going on, then I, we cannot adjust course appropriately. And this is where like, okay, you're hiring me to steward you. Maybe I'll get it right. Maybe I'll get it wrong, but let's at least communicate and, and trust each other. And if I get it wrong, okay, we'll, we'll figure out what we, we do from there. But uh, usually if you just have open lines of communication, you can figure out how to tweak and fiddle things to kind of optimize for the person. But when they start doing a little bit of the internet advice and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, then, you know, it's kind of like, well, where are we? What are we actually doing here? Yeah. Yeah. It happened to me yesterday. Actually, I, I let a client go. I said, listen, I said, uh, we're bringing in your uncle, cousin, friend that does this internet advice. Um, and I said, listen, I, there's too many cooks in the kitchen that makes for stinky soup. And I think that you need to find yourself somebody that you can work with exclusively, uh, and trust their opinions. And so I, I here's a full refund yeah. and the best of luck for you. I want only the best for you. And that's part of the reason that I'm separating our contract. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes that just has to be how it has to be. Yeah. So on the point of it's not about the money. It's about helping this person. If I can't help this person, then it's just going to be stress for me. It's going to be stress for them. It's unnecessary. And it's better we move on and, and not have to cross that bridge. Well, and it's kind of one thing, like if, if we as a coach get someone terrible results, it's kind of like, okay, I just need to own that. But if the results are suboptimum and they're not listening to anything that we're doing, then it's like, okay, that's not actually representative of me. So I think uh, from an integrity standpoint, it, it's important on a lot of different levels, but you know, it's, it's, uh, we're going to have failures and we definitely need to own those. But at the same time, we shouldn't, we shouldn't own the failures of, of uh, non-compliant you know, people, particularly if they're, they're just not telling us that, oh yeah, I'm also following uncle Fred's advice on, you know, salt loading or what have you. Yeah. 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 I love it. Well, Rob, this has been an amazing conversation. We have visited all sorts of different things and I'm really thankful that you were able to come on the show. If people want to find you, look into more of your stuff that you have going on, how do they do that? Uh, the main website is robwolf.com and uh, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com. Uh, we have a community online called the Healthy Rebellion. So if you just look, uh, you know, search Rob Wolf Healthy Rebellion, you can track that down. My wife and I do a weekly podcast called the Healthy Rebellion Radio, where we cover Q&A and have a ton of, ton of fun with that. And that's most of the stuff I've got going on. I have um, social media presence, but I mainly write stuff, send it to my, my assistant and she posts it. Uh, social media has gotten sufficiently toxic that I don't really directly interface on there anymore, shockingly. So, um, I, I may circle back to that at, at some later point, but not really right now. So yeah. Hey, that's genius. Maybe that's what I need to do because I'm like, dang, I got to, my mistake was, is I, 
used to just shut it off. And then I realized that unfortunately with my podcast, which has gotten very popular, uh, so it doesn't really matter as much anymore, but um, initially in my podcast adventures, when I would reach out to somebody to come on, they would first thing go look at my Instagram and they'd see, I didn't have that many followers and they'd be like, Oh, Oh, okay. Well, you know, no, no, we're not coming on, but it's like, well, that's not my podcast, my Instagram, two different things. So I recently started to try to build it. And then I was like, dang, I hate this. I just want to shut it off. (laughs) So maybe I just need somebody else to run it. I, you know, there should be, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some like third party vendor where like you write up what you want written and then they post it for you or something. And, you know, it's funny. I used to really enjoy it. Like I learned, um, I learned the most from interacting with people. And that's where it's kind of cool that I've got this healthy rebellion community. It's about a thousand people that are in this paid membership site. And, uh, super smart, super engaged, and there's not an algorithm pitting everybody against each other. So we'll have some spicy debate on topics, but people are respectful and it doesn't degrade into name calling and, and all that type of stuff. And so it, it's neat and that that is still a spot where, um, you know, a thousand people out looking at the world, thinking about things and asking questions, like you're, you're gonna constantly get exposed to new ideas and new concepts and everything. But I used to really enjoy answering questions online. Like I took it as part of my job. Like I, I, people would say, you, like you're answering your questions. I'm like, yeah, this is my job, man. Like I I take this seriously. And it it just, the, the noise to toxicity ratio just got so untenable at some point that uh, I I just can't do it anymore. You know, and it's kind of ironic because I I think it does end up chasing a good number of the, the more quality oriented people out of there. So the whole, it's just kind of a brain drain, I think over time perhaps, and, and uh, maybe more and more what we'll see is just uh, these kind of uh, more insular communities where maybe there's a little overlap via podcasts and stuff like that, but people kind of find who they like and, you know, what type of vibe they, they enjoy and they, they, you know, fit with, and that's who they run, run with. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure and maybe someday in the future, we'll get you on again. Anytime you want me to bring down property values, I will do it. I <laughs> love it. Love it. Take care, Rob. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you did find value in that episode, please, please, please go leave me a review. Those reviews are so important in changing those algorithms, helping other people see this podcast, and helping me get quality guests like Rob on the show. It's very, very hard work to go out and pursue guests, and it's much easier to get them on the show when they see that you have reviews and you actually have listeners that are listening. So uh, it helps me out immensely, guys. I want to keep this podcast rolling. Uh, It's something that I absolutely love to do because I get to meet people like Rob, and I feel like it's so rewarding because I'm helping get stuff out there that could potentially change somebody's life. So leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Those things are so helpful. Also, if you don't have iTunes or aren't using an Apple product, jump on over to Instagram. Take a screenshot of it. If you're on Spotify, share it on there so people can click on it. Share with your friends and family. Getting this podcast out there helps me immensely, helps other people find it, and I can't tell you how much I'm thanking you ahead of time 
for getting it out there. Thank you so much, friends, and we will see you next Monday.